When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So it's the 50th anniversary of Rolling Stone, and the new issue of Rolling Stone, which has uh, the late Tom Petty on the cover, is also our special photo issue where we look back at an incredible history of photography in this magazine. Today, to talk about that with me, I have our creative director, Jody Peckman. Hey, Hi. Jody. Hey, Brian. And we have in the studio the great photographer, Max Viducal, who's actually taking a picture right now. That's how great a photographer he is. Hey, Max. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for being here. And on the phone, we have the very first Rolling Stone photographer. I'm very excited about this, Baron Woolman. And you can still hear Max taking pictures. <laughs> this is how much of a, of a photography episode it is. And let's see if we have Baron on the line. Baron. Hey, Brian, how you doing? No, uh, listen, all those ca- those new cameras, you shouldn't hear the, ca- the, the camera taking your picture. You, <laughs> yeah. can, you can make it silent. Shudder. I don't want to go private. Yeah. I want to scream. You go stealth, man. Come on. Tricks of the trade here. So, Baron, you helped define the first incarnation of what Rolling Stone covers and photos are. I, b- before we get to your history of the magazine, I actually wanted to ask Jody because she's worked on more Rolling Stone covers than I can count. What makes a great Rolling Stone cover photo? Something that's memorable and lasts the test of time. You know, I, uh, Rolling Stone does very uh, iconic photos. Um, we do conceptual photos and we do classic portraits, but they've all been quite memorable and as long as you remember the photo, that's what makes it great. Yeah, that's a good point, Jody, because people um, will say to me, oh, yeah, I remember your pi- I remember that picture on the cover of Rolling Stone. That, that was really cool. They do remember them. They really do, if they're strong, you know. So, Baron, in the very first issue of Rolling Stone, as it was in production or whatever it was, the Grateful Dead were busted, and you shot them as they were leaving the bail bonds place. Isn't that right? Correct. And they almost shot you. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Well, they were very happy. I mean, later in the day, they almost shot me. But what's really interesting is that the the first Rolling Stone offices were down the alley from the bail bonds place. Wow. And I don't even know how I heard they were down there, but, you know, I think I was up at the office and I ran over there and there they were. The lawyers and the dead some of you know not all the dead were busted jerry wasn't busted for example was Pigpen busted? Pigpen was in yep. trouble? Yeah, okay. Yep. That yep. makes sense somehow. That was kind of your introduction. And then I remember you saying that the first concert that you covered for Rolling Stone was a Who concert. And right. you didn't know that, uh, for example, that Pete Townsend would be smashing his guitar. So you caught that image, but it, was, it, was, it must have been an overwhelming experience to be experiencing the Who for the first time at, in their absolute prime and then trying to capture memorable images of it. What was that like? I mean, well, I think maybe the fact that I hadn't seen them uh, resulted in some of those really good pictures because 
everything they were doing was photogenic, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one issue, too, that, that I discovered that in shooting music, that uh, not only was it important, of course, that the band be good musicians, but that they also do, did things that were visibly entertaining. Like, you look at Jimi Hendrix, and, you know, you might hate his music, but you couldn't not love what he did on stage. But you look at Jerry Garcia, he just stood at the microphone and did nothing for three hours. So you <laughs> took one picture and it was over. Yeah, an interesting thing about the famous Jimi Hendrix guitar burning photo mm. that Baron did not take, but was taken by Ed Carif at uh, that was Monterey Pop, right? And he was just taking photos of the musicians at the show all day, and uh, you know, it didn't know much about who was coming on next. And uh, some Australian guy came over to him and said you know, he was about to leave, and said, you know, you should hang out and wait for this cat. Hendrix that's about to play <laughs> and so he walked up to the front of the stage and said alright I'll check it out and he was the one of the two people that got that famous photo of Hendrix burning the guitar just by coincidence yeah I mean a lot of those things were good I mean if you knew anything about the band that they put on a good visual show then you know it was like what do they say shooting fish in a fishbowl because, because it was there were so many photo ops. One of the things, Baron, was back then, the access was incredible. It wasn't even an issue of access. You could just, I remember you telling me once, you could just hang around for hours and hours backstage. There was never a question. And that's how, for instance, there's a famous picture of James Taylor that you shot for us, where uh, James has this incredible, almost demented intensity in his eyes. They, and it was just a moment that you caught from hanging out. What do, you, what do you remember about both just the openness to you being around and, and then maybe specifically that James picture? Well, I mean, in general, I really believe that access is the key to getting intimate, strong, powerful pictures. Without access, <clears throat> you know, you can't get close, you can't hang out, you can't sit around and wait for a, a very magic moment that will, will happen spontaneously. And uh, the sad thing about access, I don't know if we talked about this before, but, you know, when they limit your access, they being the managers and the PR people and things like that, they're really doing their clients a disservice because the best pictures come from access. And uh, if you're not going to grant people the opportunity to be there when great things happen, then you're going to not get pictures of great things happening, you know? Your approach was more of a, a photojournalist approach rather than a portrait photographer, and you said that yeah, sort of definitely. when Annie Leibovitz came along, the whole approach started to shift. Well, actually, I do want to say one thing that's really important. In the early days of Rolling Stone, um, the only way... So there was no MTV, there was no internet, there was no way to really see what the musicians that you cared yeah. about and were, you know, your heroes and heroines, no way to see what they look like other than in the pages of Rolling Stone. And the challenge then was to make individual pictures that told a much larger story than just having been there at that moment, because that was, that was you know, one picture that, that really had a big responsibility on its shoulder to tell the story of the musicians that you, and the music, and the concerts that were important to the readers. 
Now tell me about some of the people that you got a chance to spend time with. Janis Joplin stands out. I, I think you had a, a substantial amount of time in her presence. What was that like? Well, I mean, she, she was so many things. She was, you know, she was depressive and she was exciting and she was happy and she was sad. And I mean, and, uh, you know, I would I always, my personal um, inclination was because, mind you, when I photographed her, she was in her early 20s. So she was pretty much still a kid, even though she had a really rough life growing up. And I knew that, you know, behind some of the sadness, there was a, a kid. And so I would always, and she had this fabulous smile. So I would always work really hard to get her to smile and get, get her to lighten up and give me, the photographer, and therefore the pictures, that kind of lightness that, that was also part of her p personality and meant a lot to me. She lived for a long time around, I was living in the Haight-Ashbury and she was too. And so she was living around the corner like two or three blocks away, so she was very accessible. Who else stands out in your memory among musicians that, that you had memorable encounters with in, in your time with Long Stone? What about Joni? Joni Mitchell? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the wonderful thing about Joni Mitchell, and I wish I had known more about Joni Mitchell when I went up to her house, cause I, and I actually didn't photograph her for Rolling Stone, interestingly enough, although Rolling Stone ran a bunch right. of the pictures. But I, um, I was up at her house, I think it was, for, remember iMagazine, Joni? Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, and I Magazine kind of, we were not getting paid at Rolling Stone very much. I mean, <laughs> if we were, it wasn't very much. So Hearst came along, decided they wanted to do a full-color, oversized, glossy, counterculture magazine because they saw the success that Rolling Stone was having. And so they, hi they, didn't hi they hired a bunch of us as freelancers, and I was able to take color pictures for them. And Rolling Stone, we couldn't shoot color because we could only print black and white black plus one that's color great. to give a spot that's color great baron i can't believe i'm hearing this <laughs> i'm what? banned from doing color pictures these days all over the world it's crazy <laughs> know, to hear well, what you're saying it's amazing i mean it's gold black and white forever amazing. yeah no i mean i love black and white and i i really i i mean i can talk about the difference between color and black and white a lot but so i went up to do jo Joni mitchell at the house that Graham Nash wrote about, remember wow. our house? Sure. And I shot a bunch of color stuff, and it was just this delightful afternoon where we sat and had tea, and I took pictures, and we talked about everything. And uh, she was very hospitable, and I must have hung out there for an hour or so, maybe more. She was living in Laurel Canyon, you know, where everybody was in those days. <clears throat> that was a really magic moment. I wish, however, I had known more about Joni Mitchell. I wish I had known more, actually, about almost every musician that I photographed, because the more you know about them, the more the pictures can reflect who they really are. You know, I worked really hard to figure out who they were, but there was no internet and there was no Google or stuff. So, you know, I, I know, it's, I know, man, it's, it was like 50 fucking years ago. <laughs> there wasn't this sort of distance that there could be now. They weren't seen as quote unquote celebrities, rock musicians at that point. My understanding is that you were kind of approaching them on a field of equals. You were doing your creative thing. They were doing their creative thing. Wasn't it more collegial at that point? Absolutely. I mean, and that was a good thing. It was so interesting to watch them become stars and watch them become more isolated by their managers and their PR people. It was really kind of, kind of sad. They were still the good people that 
that, you know, we hung out with, but they were less and less accessible. Now, as opposed to that, um, Rolling Stone, we did, we did a lot of, not a lot, but enough stories about the blues musicians, and the blues musicians were so hospitable. They welcomed you backstage. They get, hey, you want to have a drink? You want to have a smoke? Come on, let's hang out a little bit. And they were always so pleasant, even when they became much more well-known than you know they were when they were introduced. I mean, remember that so much of the British musicians, so many of the British musicians, so much of the British, the UK music came from the blues, the Delta blues and the Mississippi blues and all that stuff, you know, from the U.S. And yet they never, they never really got their due until Bill Graham at the, you know, at the Fillmore and Rolling Stone started to cover them in a way that, you know, in a, in a righteous way. Do any unpleasant experiences stand out with musicians back in those days? Any unfortunate run-ins, anything uncomfortable? No, I, you know, I'm asked that a lot, but, you know, you have to remember this. Back in those days, too, even if musicians didn't want to cooperate, they knew they needed Rolling Stone as much as Rolling Stone needed us. Only game in town, sort of, back at that point. It really was. It really was. And so they almost, you know, knew that they had to cooperate. Anyhow, you know, I come across, I'm a pretty nice guy, and I think that was part of it, too. And I also came with as much knowledge about them and their lives and their, and their career as I could, because I realized that the most popular subject for somebody to talk about is him or herself, right? And if you go in honestly asking questions about somebody and listening and having a dialogue and being really attentive and they begin to trust you. Remember Jim Marshall? He did a whole book called Trust. You build up a trust between the photographer and the subject and you get the best pictures that way. And that was something that I tried to do every time I would go in and photograph somebody for Rolling Stone. Well, Baron Woolman was the first, very first Rolling Stone photographer, and it was an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to talk about it. I could talk about it forever, man. <laughs> hopefully we can do it again. We're talking about 50 years of rock photography in the pages of Rolling Stone tied to our new photo issue with the late Tom Petty on the cover. And we have in the studio our creative director, Jody Peckman, and the great photographer, Max Viducal. And we we're going to talk a little bit about... Max's work for Rolling Stone and Jody's work, which encompasses many, many years of covers. But Max, you were telling a story early on. You started shooting for Rolling Stone around 85. You shot a Sting cover. Did that go pretty smoothly? Nothing sticks out in your memory about, about shooting Sting? Um, the Sting cover was for his first um, solo album. So it was a breakaway from rock music and it was definitely an unusual request because he had Helmut Newton pagged for the shoot. Um, that was like a three, almost a three week shoot in Barbados. So when Rolling Stone had asked for uh, a picture, I had plenty of pictures for it. Um, what was staggering about shooting that particular cover was simply that um, I had so much time to play around. And it goes back to how much we're compressed today to deliver massive mm. amounts of material. You don't have to, that level of time give you great quality. The shoot afterwards that really followed that was Phil Collins. Yeah. And it, uh, he was really, really an exciting uh, performer and still is today. 
But the request from the art director at that time was uh, Derek Ungles, and he basically said, go and surprise me, just do what you want. And uh, we were sent to New for, to London via, uh, from New York. Phil ended up in the studio in Camden Town and on a great seamless. I really softened him up a little bit in this environment. And I said to him, listen, Phil, these pictures are kind of boring. What do you think? Uh, should we do something really extreme? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm really used to the studio stuff. It's boring. So mm. I had my assistant at the meantime, I had him dressed up as an ostrich. Of course. Uh, an ostrich yeah. outfit. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, we're, we're working daylight, so there's no lights. And I said, let's just go out. And Keith, my assistant, is going to follow. He's just going to be in an ostrich outfit. Don't mind him. And uh, he said, okay. He still hadn't figured out that this was going to be part of the picture yet. <laughs> So we walk up uh, Camden High Street, get to Regent's Park, and open green fields, and Phil is standing there. To the left and to the right is the ostrich. <laughs> this looks like a Sergio Leone <laughs> film still right now. And I said, okay, Phil, let's, uh, let's see how, how good your kung fu is. I said, let's go, come on, let's go. Let's go, come on, a few karate chops here. Keith, come on, slide in here, come on, <laughs> throw, throw a kick. It got really crazy. The pictures started to get really like exciting to me. Uh-huh. Uh, Phil, I think, thought, "God, I've had enough of this." <laughs> he he got he got pretty uh, rattled by it. I said, "Don't worry, I'll pick the best picture. It's don't mind the chaos." The, the it's, best uh, shot of him yeah, karate <laughs> fighting on Asterix. Yes, yeah. I said, "Everything I do is chaotic, and then I'll pick the right picture. Please don't worry about this." Um, we walk back. He he calmed down, and I remember he said, "Do you mind if I walk on the other side of the road?" because I do not want to be seen with that guy. Now, <laughs> when the pictures came in, though, I was expecting, you know, Rolling Stone to say bravo, which is what I like to hear. Sure. Instead, I got, what the hell did you do? <laughs> I didn't ask you to be so flippant. This is such a throwaway. What the hell did you do? Mm. And to this day, Jan Wenner still describes Max as that photographer that takes insane, <laughs> wacky pictures. I mean, this is kind of what this is kind of what he does. What's so charming and wonderful about him is he he starts off every shoot very calm and gently in this in the studio. Everything's wonderful, very beautiful photos. And there is always some breakout moment where some insane idea comes. Mm. We shot John Oliver in the studio and Max had him go outside on the West Side Highway in Manhattan and play cricket in the middle of the traffic. Every time there was a, a red light, the two of them would run out and play cricket together. He just disarms these people in such a fantastic way and it really sets his pictures apart. But I will say, Brian, it does take a partner. I mean, there there has to be an enabler. And yeah. Jody is a phenomenal enabler. She's constantly egging me on to like, come on, get crazy, man. Let's go. Come on, you know. So it's <laughs> constantly in my ear, and she knows really the the currency in the picture really is when it gets turns kind of wacky or crazy at least. Yeah, I mean, the unexpected always makes yeah. a great picture. How, how much does it matter? I'm just thinking about Sting, this sort of physically beautiful, perfect specimen, and Phil Collins, not so much. Well, does I mean, it, Sting in the picture looks like a rabbit. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, like I first, I I first met Max, I was down in Barbados at Sting's sessions, just hanging out, and when I first arrived there, I walked through the studio, and out in the back, I saw Sting leaping around like a jack grab it with this crazy guy this picture, that yeah. was wearing a fez and I had known Sting for years who's basically pretty mild mannered and it was just beyond my comprehension that he could get him to do something He was in like a that. Comme des Garçons suit as well and I think his manager Miles Davis 
hated those pictures so much that he started to stomp on the prints in front of my eyes, in front of Sting, and he said, you've destroyed my boy. But Sting said, nah, these are great pictures. Mm. And it ran. Let's jump ahead to a very different kind of shoot with Amy Winehouse. I understand it was not an easy interview from uh, talking to Jenny Liska, who, who did it, and it was not an easy shoot either, was it? Well, firstly, I was very excited to actually photograph her for the cover of Rolling Stone because I'd done it before for another magazine, but it wasn't a cover. And uh, that was a few months earlier. So the cover in this particular case in the uh, large size of Rolling Stone is was kind of great to see this beehive, mm. um, this great voice uh, appear on the cover. I could sort of visualize it, but we ended up, Jody, what, leaving at four o'clock in the morning to Miami? Um, yeah, know, I mean, early start. We, we met her at a hotel down in Miami, and she came in in a fantastic mood. She had just gotten married, I think, that morning, yes. and she was <laughs> so happy and light and so the opposite of what you know. And I think Max went outside on the beach with her to take some of the wedding photos. Mm. Yeah, so she, what happened was we get to the reception, and she says, Max, I can't believe you're doing this great. Could you do my wedding pictures for me? <laughs> I said, when? She goes, you know, I'm thinking like a few months ahead or something. And she says, no, now we just got married. And I'm looking at Jody and crikey, this is not good because it's going to suck out our time. Sure. And um, But Jody said, go ahead, take 10 minutes and do it. But actually, I rattled off like 500 frames. But she was very happy. I mean, she was extremely happy in this period. Yeah, and we photographed them kind of embracing on the bed. And, and then the plan was to move over to the studio in a, right. a later in that day and take the cover. And just the entire direction of the day changed. Her mood just first of all we waited over five hours for her to show up and when she did it was like a completely different yeah. person Jacqueline Hyde mm. really and obviously for me was uh, it's a big responsibility to execute that cover and um, I was very proud of her to make that so she sat there and at one point I fired off a few frames and um, I looked on the screen I said, this is not going anywhere. We need to work a little harder on the shape. I was talking to her to explain you know, where this has to go. She said, what am I doing here? I wow. just got married. Mm. What am I doing here? And suddenly the the day turned really dark. <laughs> it was very dark. Yeah, I mean, I don't, really I don't feel comfortable saying this, but she said to me many times, I don't want to be here. I, I just want to kill myself. Or she said, I want to off myself, Ugh. which I guess was the, her expression. Yeah. It was so depressing and kind of scary. Uh, she disappeared in the bathroom, came back on the screen, and we started to shoot. And then, like, literally 15 frames after, she disappeared, said, I'm leaving, and that's it. We, mm. we, we were trying to negotiate with the uh, handlers and... They were reassuring us, she's going to come back, don't worry about it. We waited, I don't know, three hours. At this point, it was like, let's just go and have lunch. It didn't happen, she didn't come back. But um, he, we managed to get off a pretty intimate, beautiful photo we did. of her. We did. You have extremely memorable. I think you said it that if you zoom in on one of the pictures. Yeah, there was, um, you know, it's not the sort of thing I uh, like to... Uh, look at but it's very unusual because uh, unfortunately the digital technology is like a microscope now so when uh, you look at this I noticed some white powder under the nose and I thought oh dear now I understand why it's gone wonky yikes you know? yeah and at that point I um, I could be more comfortable with myself thinking it wasn't me who was creating the environment or the situation I understood something else had taken over her uh, psyche yeah um, 
it just because it was she was very very um collaborative at the very beginning and of course getting married with her husband in a super nice suit uh, they were, she was wonderful and then suddenly to flip into the jackal and hide outfit i'm not good at dealing with those kind of jumps i'm extremely naive and green in these areas like <laughs> yeah <laughs> if somebody's on something or whatever i have no idea that they're actually doing that a little bit it's of an occupational hazard in the the music world sometimes <laughs> uh, and i've quite enjoyed that part of it actually it's quite the opposite <laughs> to you <laughs> i mean no jody jody come on jody you were saying the the weird part of your job one of the many weird parts is that you've uh, smoked weed with the most bizarre assortment of human beings of, of possibly anyone on the planet let's see if i can remember some of them i think it went from rizza to uh with khalifa to that's right and yeah. uh, Mr. Brad Pitt uh, quite the range of people <laughs> and with me and you said I wasted it yes I have no right. idea how to use this I a few, uh, <laughs> a few years ago we did um, we were shooting a cover with Wiz Khalifa I didn't really know him or who he was that well but he came to the um, shoot you know and photo studios are these kind of big cavernous rooms and with no windows and once you close that door it's like boom, it's just sealed shut and there was non-stop smoking from the early, he got there in the morning and just it was a cloud a cloud of amazing smoke you know I've since heard that he kind of next to Willie Nelson smokes the best weed there is but so I, he asked me if I, later in the day you know did I want some and I, I said sure and I took some and smoked it and I was so high. I was dancing with him, and I was so incredibly stoned. And the shoot was all day. And at the end, I just kind of walked out of the studio. It was the middle of winter, and all of a sudden, I was walking around Soho, and I realized I didn't have a coat on, and it was freezing out, and I wasn't cold, and. It was an incredible day, but cut to about nine months later, the the photographer Theo Wenner, who did that shoot, was doing another shoot with Wiz at um at Coachella, and uh, Wiz came up to him and said, "Hey man, how you doing? I remember you. I remember that shoot." And then he said, "Man, that lady from Rolling Stone was fucked." up <laughs> you like, totally remembered me it was so embarrassing so i mean so those things happen from time to time i mean we shot uh rage in the studio as well many many years ago it was a shoot where everybody again was smoking a lot of pot all day long mm. and um when the shoot was over they they wouldn't leave they just kept hanging out and smoking and we kept bringing food for them and i remember sitting with rizza mm. and there was a very famous book called the um thousand greatest Ma uh album covers yeah so oh, yeah. every kid yeah, that loves great. looking at art or album covers has this book and so he took it down from the bookshelf and we sat there for about two hours in the lounge of the studio really high just going through every album cover and dissecting it and talking about it it, it was hilarious but it was a very memorable day Max, what do you remember about uh, shooting Bruce Springsteen? What stood out in, in your mind? Because he, he's someone who's, n you're not going to get him to kung fu fight an ostrich. Like, that's not going to happen with Bruce Springsteen. If it would have happened if I'd had a little more time. <laughs> um, his cars. Yeah. Um, you know, the music is legendary, no question about. But his love of cars is kind of awesome. Um, that hits you right away. In fact, the picture is with his car. I love that picture. Yeah. Um, also, inside his uh, living room, the collection of photographs that he has, 
Um, in fact, Jody, I remember you said, you got to document all of this. Look at this, you know. Yeah. And it was like staggering. He, the he's not. Of he's really not happy in the studio, you know, sitting there posing right. for a photo he on a piece right. of white paper. And he's very, he gets very antsy and he wants to leave. And so he was happy that day down on the shore to take us outside. And he had prearranged to have a couple of his cars brought up onto the uh, boardwalk there. So you can imagine what's going on down in the Jersey Shore, up on the boardwalk in these wonderful cars and how many fans kind of mm. start collecting there. And so he really kind of breaks loose when he's you know in, engaged or out and doing something. He is a fairly rigid idea of what he wants to present. Sometimes he won't even smile. He, he, yeah. he has a definite idea of what he wants to present. And in fact, that day with Max, my, my goal was to photograph him with his aviator sunglasses on, which he did not want to do, and to get him to smile. And right. he was not happy. He kept saying the whole time, I know what you're doing. You're trying <laughs> to get me to smile, and I'm not going to do it. And Max has a wonderful wild sense of humor and he was just so funny bruce couldn't help it and he was cracking up do, and do you remember what, what what did you say to him do you remember i don't, I don't remember i don't know you're just telling him jokes just I don't know. Him, yeah i can't remember yeah. what it was um, but yeah he did he did break out yeah it's the 2007 magic yeah. cover he you looks can look, so yeah. handsome he looks fantastic but he has a great smile yeah it's a rare picture where he let him you guys coaxed him into having a little bit of rock star swagger right. rather than just the sort of i, I'm I a might have said something like I love jazz can you play jazz something like that <laughs> must right. have been something right. like that and he just cracked out yeah fair enough we're about to be joined by Mark Seliger who's shot well over 150 Rolling Stone cover stories I'm not sure exactly what he's up to now Mark you there I'm there I'm have, here have I'm, you, I'm somewhere <laughs> have you lost count do you know how, how many covers have you shot at this point for Rolling Stone I know it's over 150 well, something like that. Um, <laughs> See, I keep I track of how many are right, but you know, you got a lot going on. You know, there's so many to talk about. I, I wanted to uh, jump to Nirvana um, because mm. you know we, we've been taught. We talked about Amy Winehouse earlier with Max. It's just when people pass on, it it tends to take on a new significance. And and you shot some incredible and historic and and you know legendary and will always be remembered pictures of Kurt and Nirvana. So. The first time was the the sort of infamous corporate magazine still suck shoot. <laughs> so tell me everything you remember about that. I mean, what, what what were those guys like? What was Kurt's attitude like? It was such a, a dance between I'm doing this, but I don't really want to do it. But actually, I do want to do it. You were witness to that entire somewhat silly '90s it's alt that, dance that they did. What was all that, that like? It's that disguise of not you know of of wanting to be kind of reluctant, but at the same time, you know, I think being 100% in, you know, managing your, you know, your career. So, I mean, it's interesting because it was pretty authentic. Um, I was sent kind of in a rush to go to Melbourne um, to do this cover, and I met uh, the guys, uh, minus Kurt, at, um, you know, where they were playing, which was near Luna Park in Melbourne, for those of you from Australia. Um, and so I met with the guys. I had seen the show, and they had a um, they had a um, kind of a ongoing way of representing the grunge scene by writing you know names on their t shirt and you know doing all this kind of like homemade you know outsider art on their you know on their clothing. And so when Kurt, Kurt you know for instance like Kurt used to wear a shirt with the band Flipper on it, and it was a dolphin with you know the eyes crossed out. And so to, to kind of, you know, nip it in the butt, I said, hey, would you guys mind 
passing this on to Kurt and, you know, for you too, just, you know, wear whatever you want to wear, but it would be better if there wasn't any writing on anything. And of course, that's telling like, you know, you know, it's like telling a teenager not to do something. And, uh, you know, uh, the first day we did two half hour shoots. The first day they showed up, Kurt was wearing a shirt with a weird little animated duck on it that said the Grateful Dead still suck. <laughs> and then uh, the following day, um, you know, I kind of emphasized, like, you know, well, what would you want to wear? You know, that was kind of funny. Um, and he, they kind of piled out of this van, and both Chris and uh, Dave were laughing, and then Kirk got out, and he was wearing his, you know, his signature sweater and dark, big, dark sunglasses, and then he opened up the sweater, and it said, Corporate Magazine Still Suck. And, and I was kind of laughing, and I, you know, said, oh, you want maybe not wearing that shirt could we do something different and he was like nope and I said well, what about the sunglasses off and he goes sure and every time he take his shirt sunglasses off he'd cross his eyes and so <laughs> then I realized I was uh, you know I was I was going to get what I was going to get and I did the shoot and we had a you know pretty great time working together and you know very you know like very uh, uh, connected and they were they were they were pretty wonderful and I got on a plane that night and I was like, why did I say something like that? Why did I, you know, why did I make that suggestion? And I was sort of kicking myself flying back to New York. And when I got back, I, you know, apologetically sent the, the Chrome in and I, you know, said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I guess maybe I, uh, you know, pushed it them to wearing the shirt and it was my fault. And, and everybody loved it, the magazine and they, and they ran that as the cover. And I, uh, two years later when In Utero came out um, I also was assigned to do the, the cover mm. and I thought oh man they're gonna they're not gonna want to work with me or there's gonna be some kind of reluctance in me doing it and sort of open arms like whatever you want to do you know and I felt as if maybe you know I, I had kind of won them over by the fact that I had you know we had retained what, what the message that they wanted to say and when I got there, you know, we arranged this thing for them to be wearing Brooks Brothers suits, like the idea of the kind of the reverse, like, you know, oh, here's what happens when you go corporate. And they loved that. And Kurt was really, you know, you know, super enthusiastic. And then uh, we shot the kind of single portraits um, of them. And during the, the session, I had used Polaroid on the first one of Kurt, which was this, you know, very, you know, this kind of melancholy uh, moment in his eyes and, and all the other film really did not match, you know, quite the same attitude. And, uh, we kept on, you know, kind of worked through, uh, some other, uh, images. And then, um, two months later I was in actually in Paris shooting the counting crows and, um, and we got word that he had, you know, he had died. Yeah. And, uh, and that became, that image became the, um, you know, sadly, and everybody remembers what that was like. It was really like losing, you know, the artist of our generation of the gen of that generation, and um, and that became the memorial photograph. Around the same time, ninety three, uh, you shot Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Uh, yeah, so that was that was uh, my that was kind of my entree into uh, into hip hop was going to um, Los Angeles and. You know, um, you know, really kind of researching sort of what was going on with them, and you know, the West Coast, um, you know, the West Coast sound, and um, and you know, the the assignment was to go and get to know them 
on this video shoot, which is the chronic video shoot, which was wow. in, in, in Compton. And um, it was, you know, obviously it was a time when there was like an incredible amount of tension and all kinds of uh, adversity that was happening in L.A. And, um, and so when I was working with them, I, you know, just hung out on the set. And if you, I don't know if you remember the photograph of, of Snoop and, and Dre that were sitting on um, a car that right, was used on the street. shoot. And if you look down, Dre has a, a, a bracelet around his uh, ankle, which was for, you know, it was a house arrest tag. So um, wow. I was worried that he was, I th- was worried that he was going to be leaving set. And his publicist says, oh, no, 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 he's on house arrest. He'll be there all night. That's, in a way, that's an ideal scenario for you, really. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, can, if you can get some kind of uh, situation with any of your artists that you're worried they're going to leave early, just, just try to get them on house arrest. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that ensures that they'll be around at least for the, you know, for the duration of the shoot. On the cover of our new issue is uh, a picture of Tom Petty. Uh, yeah. As it happens, which was, of course, not what we uh, had in mind for this issue. But uh, what are your memories of either just that shoot with Tom Petty, or any sort of Tom Petty memories of working with him? Well, I mean, Tom was a Tom was you know a absolute delight and a wonderful man to work with. And I had worked with him over the years. In fact, currently, um, you know, up to really up to last year, we had had done a photo shoot. And every time uh, working with him was um, there was. Um, you know this 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 very open, very you know generous, warm. It was like you know meeting up with an old friend, and you know he was uh, really fun to talk to. I remember shooting uh, him at his house. Uh, I think it was the second time we worked together, and um, and we were talking about uh, George Harrison because I had a, a shoot with him for the anniversary issue for Rolling Stone, and and I was worried a little bit because I knew that he was a, another sort of reluctant. Soul. And, hmm. um, you know, obviously photographing a beetle was a big deal for me. And, um, and so I was talking to Tom cause I knew, you know, they had a relationship with yeah. traveling mulberries. And so he was like, you know, Hey Mark, you know, just, you know, my advice to you is come with, you know, four or five ukuleles and, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll find a very happy man. And, you know, that was the kind of guy he was, he was, you know, he was really interested in kind of hearing what was going on in your world. And, he was cool and super laid back, and you know, obviously, the the, um, the impact of those songs, those anthems, um, you know, those will those will be with us forever. For sure, uh, one of Jody's favorite shoots, I think, was with Fish, where somehow yeah. somehow they ended up in like a can, as if they were a can fish or whatever. What was that like? I mean, I you know, typically would would flush out ideas with, um, with, uh, Jody and Fred Woodward. And we would come up with these, you know, kind of big, you know, ideas for a cover and then not knowing if people would go there or not. And, um, and so we literally were, in, we were in Vermont, we literally made a, um, a sardine can out of plywood and lined it. And I went to the grocery store with my assistant and we bought 35 gallons of olive oil. 
and um, and poured it in there. And, 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 and I mean, I'm not quite sure whether you really needed the olive oil, but it was it was just part of the um, it was the you know the icing on the cake. It was incredible. And, uh, you would never do that today with what with Photoshop and everything. But those guys laying there naked with <laughs> olive oil pouring into their ears, and it was it was un- I, I I was shocked that they did that and stayed in there so long. <laughs> yeah. But it was, um, they were great. I mean, you know, fish, fish are, um, you know, they're a very conceptual, uh, playful group of musicians. And that's, you know, it's always tricky with musicians because, you know, it's like we come back to Tom, you know, the, the, the that picture that's sung, uh, the current cover, the memorial cover, you yeah. know, that was a photograph that, um, you know, we did a very kind of a, uh, a representation of where he was in his music and his costuming and who he was. And then we kind of stole from the videos, whatever research we could find and, and created, you know, an image with him that felt very much about who he was at that time. But, you know, if you have an opportunity to work with a playful, um, you know, musician, um, you know, you can get away with a concept and it's just really riding that wave. It's like, you know, the difference between, you know, fish and Tom were, um, just to kind of bring up those two covers is that, um, we didn't really try to, to do anything that would alter that, what his persona was and who he was. And I don't think he would really, you know, be up for that. It was always kind of about who he was. I did get him to ride a camel in, uh, <laughs> in 29, in 20, in, uh, uh, where was it? Joshua tree. Wow. And, uh, when I, when I was talking to him about, you know, photographing him riding a camel, you know, he kind of looked at me sort of puzzled and he said, Oh, well, you know, I did go to Egypt and I rode a camel and, uh, <laughs> I was like, cool. All right. Well, so we're, 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 we're heading the right direction. And um, I don't know what it meant, but it was just a kind of a fun idea, you know. And then I photographed him one time and very unsuccessfully in a grocery store. And <laughs> we went to, um, I don't know, we went to sort of a Geldens or something in Los Angeles, not, not too far from his house. And when I was telling him the ideas, he was like, I don't know if I've been in a grocery store for like 15 years. <laughs> and he says, what, what do they look like? And I said, they're, they're a lot bigger than you would, you know, what you would remember. And so, so we went into this grocery store and he was, I remember him being wide eyed and just going, wow, these, these, these things are confusing now. <laughs> and, uh, and we did the shot of him sort of walking around, you know, collecting, uh, uh, groceries. That was for the also for the 25th anniversary. We ended up going back to his house the next day and shooting on his um, in his bedroom where he was wearing a, a one of his robes, which was um, cowboys and Indians, and sitting with his feet, you know, kind of propped up and very Tom Petty face. So I always try to, you know, dig deep into the humor and tell a story and find a way to create a memorable photograph. You know, these everybody's been photographed a million times. Mm-hmm. So what I consider my job is, is to, to create, you know, an image that, you know, this would be the last time I would be able to photograph them. So what am I going to walk away with? How is that going to be different from everybody else's shoot? That was the great Mark Selger. We've had the great photographer Max Viduco in the studio and Jody Peckman, our creative director. 
And we'll be back next week here on Channel 106 on Sirius. In the meantime, download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, and we'll be right back next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.